0: This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Brew. For this episode of the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast, we're in Southern California, San Diego, to be exact. Uh, I took the occasion of Homebrew to pop down to San Diego because, you know, it had been years since i had been down here in San Diego. And in fact, last time I was down here in San Diego it was, I think, for one of our Brewery Accelerator events. And uh, joining me on that panel back then was Winslow Sawyer, who is my guest right now for the podcast here, Winslow uh co-founder head brewer for pure project. Welcome to the podcast
1: Winslow. Thanks so much for having me, Jamie. I really appreciate you having me on.
0: Yeah, we did. a. I remember that it was a panel on trendy styles and, uh, <laughs> you brought, uh, you brought cans of, of pure project rain, a lager, uh, when, and this is like 18, 2018, 2019, you know, it's still early days for the, for the lager trend. I think a lot, you know, lagers in America didn't really hit full steam until, uh, until the pandemic when everyone had tank time to actually, uh, you know, kind of explore some of these projects. Um, Nonetheless, and I think you know, also you know made some really interesting comments through that as we have, you know I remember sanitation and your your, <laughs> your approach to sanitation uh, you know just kind of stuck out in my mind anyway. Um, over the ensuing years, Pure Project has sent us plenty of beers and a lot of your hazy IPAs have scored incredibly well with our blind uh, blind reviewers. You know, as well as things like your spontaneous beers, mixed culture beers, um, and so. You know, Pure Project has a, a broad range of beers that you all are, are passionate about. Uh, everything, again, from lager to spontaneous beer, with a bunch of hazy IPA thrown into that mix. We're going to talk about some of the the creative ways that you approach those, both from a you know, you know a creative standpoint and ideation standpoint, as well as figuring out ways to build personality and a Pure Project kind of angle to those beers and uh, you know any common threads that we can find through all of those things. And then, of course, you know how you make mixed culture and spontaneous beer down here. Uh, quite a few, uh, um, uh, quite a bit further south than uh, they, they <laughs> say the the typical latitudes where uh, spontaneous beer is made. And of course, you know California actually has quite a few excellent spontaneous beer makers. Um, you know that have uh, cracked a code for making some of these beers in places that uh, some folks thought that it not be weren't able to be made. We're going to talk about all of that before we do. For years, GD Chillers has chilled the beers you love, partnering with 3,000 plus breweries across the country. They are proud of the cool partnerships they've built over the past 30 years. They know brewing doesn't stop at 5 o'clock, nor do they. GD uses quality components, expert craftsmanship, and constant innovation. With 24 7 service and support, your brewery will never stop. Remote monitor your chiller for simple and fast access to all the information you need, providing you with the peace of mind your operation is running smoothly. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com or call to discuss your next project. Also, this episode is sponsored by CanCraft, stressed about packaging and can supply. Don't worry, CanCraft's team of design and aluminum specialists are here to make things easy by supporting you every step of the way. From aluminum cans to lids to pack tech can carriers to design help, CanCraft can provide you with a full-service packaging experience from design to delivery. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com CanCraft to get started. And if you hear Old Orchard mentioned in the brewing community, don't be surprised. The flavored craft juice concentrate blends from Old Orchard have shipped to over 46 states. Their new brewing customers often mention discovering Old Orchard through the word-of-mouth recommendation of another brewer to join the core of Old Orchard's brewing community, learn more at oldorchard.com slash brewer. So Winslet, let's start with your story. What's your story?
1: <laughs> My story. What's your
0: brewing story? You know, where, where did it start? Where'd you catch the bug? And uh, and then what pushed you to then follow this as a career?
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, you know, growing up uh, in high school, I had some friends uh, whose parents are European. So, you know, they would let us do things at their house (laughs) that other families wouldn't let us do. So modern. But it was a, it was a good way to, you know, learn adult drinking culture and not, you know, just drinking forties in some park somewhere with your friends. Um, so, you know, I grew up, you know, drinking, uh, Fuller's and, you know, good beers. Uh, and then went to college and everyone was drinking Coors Light and throwing ping pong balls in it. And I really wasn't into that. So I started brewing my own beer because I was, uh, Seventeen at the time and could not buy beer, um, so first started with uh, you know English styles. Um, got really into making Belgian styles because I didn't need temperature control, which right. was really handy when um, the uh, summers in <laughs> Santa Cruz. Uh, and then from there, I started working at a uh, homebrew shop. I ended up so. I did my senior thesis at UC Santa Cruz on uh, the sustainability of the brewing industry. Huh. Uh, I was in the environmental studies program and working um, in the sustainable agriculture um, part of the environmental studies program, and then ended up focusing that into beer once I was just super into beer. Sure. I couldn't go to breweries yet. I was 20, so ah. I was you know <laughs> emailing Anchor Steam right, right. and all these places. I was like, hey, I guess if I do my thesis on this, they will might let me in and not card me got to go to like all these breweries before I was 21. It was really cool. Got, you know, tours from the head brewers and you know, it was, it was really great. And then that was kind of my segue from there, got a job at a local homebrew shop. Um, and uh, it was really cool cause it was the only uh, certified organic homebrew shop in the world um, called Seven uh, Bridges. Unfortunately they've closed now it was a co-op. So, you know, having 35 owners, uh, it's sure. hard to sure. figure out and make it work. Um, but I worked there for about a year and then started working at uh, Boulder Creek Brewing Company. Okay, up in the Santa is Cruz Mountains. That homebrew shop where Tim Clifford was also working. Yeah, so okay. Tim was the yeah. front desk guy yeah. at the homebrew shop. He let me borrow his uh, angle grinder to make my first keggle. And then when he left, he you know was like, "Give Winslow my job." So, which is really cool. So yeah. Tim was definitely a big uh, mentor of mine um, early on and, you know, got me into mixed fermentation stuff. And I definitely use a lot more New Zealand hops because of them. Uh, uh, they had a really good relationship with, uh, NZ hops. Uh, and were able to get good organics from them because there's no powdery mildew in New Zealand. It's true. So started, you know, my first homebrew hops were like Nelson and (laughs) all these awesome hops that no one else was getting. (laughs) Uh, so that was really fun. Um, and from there, I started working at Boulder Creek Brewery, which was up in the Santa Cruz Mountains. It was the uh, 13th craft brewery in California, so really old. I think it was started in like the mid '80s. The brewery was older than me. Um, the I started working there when I was 21, and then the next year, the head brewer left, and I became the head brewer at 22, Oof. which I felt <laughs> really fortunate. Um, yeah. The, you know, most people don't get to do that unless their daddy buys them a brewery. So I've gotten really lucky in my path. Like I had a decision to make, I was either going to be a, a park ranger or go work at the homebrew shop. And I'm really glad that I worked at the homebrew shop. I had to, I had to make that choice and it was really, uh, it was, I was just really touring cause I like the woods. I like yeah. being outdoors, but I'm glad I became uh, a brewer. Uh, not many people get to have this like lucky path. Sure. Um, well, what brought you
0: to, uh, to Southern California
1: then? Yeah. So I was running that brewery for about three, four years. And then unfortunately we had like an electrical fire at the brewery and the whole brewery burned down. Um, It was really sad. Yeah. Yeah. It was all, you know, hand tooled wood bar and just Uh. it caught up like matchsticks and uh, I was pretty lost, you know, I was, you know, 24 years old, didn't know what to do. Um, and then I decided, you know, San Diego was the place for me, you know, it was a really burgeoning, um, beer scene at the time. This was, uh, 2015. Um, and, moved south and you know first my resume was like oh head brewer of this brewery i was going to all these breweries no one would want to hire me because i was overqualified then i was the the you know sellerman there and then eventually my resume just said bartender for four years <laughs> <laughs> and then that i was able to get a job once i sp- dumbed it down to a uh, bartender no not that is dumb i'm just saying once i was able to like have a, a you know that job title um, and from there I met my business partners, Jesse and Matt, um, on Prober.com hmm. uh, to start pure project with them. Um, so I came on that team in October of 2015 and, uh, the rest is a uh, history. Yeah.
0: What's the idea behind, you know, behind pure project?
1: Yeah. The idea behind pure project, uh, <sighs> At the time, a lot of breweries were starting that were based around styles, right? So we're, we're going to open a Czech lager brewery, or we're going to open a West Coast IPA brewery. Ours was always ingredients, right? My my background being in sustainable agriculture, we really wanted to focus on ingredients, sustainability, um, and uh, dedicate ourselves to be a 1% for the planet company.
0: How did that translate into uh, you know, what you decided to then brew and focus on?
1: Yeah, the big piece was we were instead of starting with a style and then brewing that we were starting with an ingredient and then creating style around that. So, you know, we find this amazing Pilsner malt made by Admiral let's make a Pilsner. Uh, we have these amazing strawberries that a local organic farm is growing. We should make a, you know, a, a cream ale with it and put it in it. Um, so we didn't really, I feel like sometimes we probably make too many things We're kind of like the the master of none thing, Jack of all trades. You know, I wish I sometimes would just like focus on one thing, but uh, I think that's the beauty of the fermentation arts. There's just so much diversity and it's really fun to be able to, to make so many different things, especially being, you know, professional brewer, you don't have to drink the whole batch of the beer, which is great. You know, I can some, you know, make this a style that might not be my favorite style. I can have a pint of it and reflect on, you know, whether or not I like it or see, you know, people in our audience enjoying the beer or not, and then, you know, be able to change it and make it better for the next time.
0: Sure. So that works when you're one
1: location and
0: you have, you know, a, a you know, maybe a 10 barrel brew house and a batch. And once it's gone, it's gone. You know, you all have multiple tap rooms. Now the business has evolved. You've had to find lanes to, you know, to focus in so that brew, you know so that Patrons, because you're in San Diego, it's a it's a busy beer market. There's a lot of breweries in San Diego mm-hmm. County, um, and a, a, a you know very educated uh, you know audience of beer consumers. You know how does that business then evolved from that early inspiration of ingredients to to what it looks like now? you know and how do you all you know um then focus i mean i remember those early days of uh you you'd come out to GABF and you know pouring flanders red <laughs> and these big sour beers and uh, you know and fruited sour beers and and you you won some awards for those kinds of things and they were great you know like obviously the beer world is different now than yeah. it was then um those aren't the most commercially viable things. You know, now you have to balance this idea of those beers you want to you know make for the sake of making them with the things that audience, the audience wants from you. How, how do you, you know, find some pure project through line through that?
1: Yeah, I, I think the big thing is, in the end, the the brewery is a business. Um, so initially we were like, oh, I, want, I really wanna be, you know, a farmhouse brewery and only make saisons and mixed fermentation beers. Uh, we obviously had a you know house uh, west coast IPA you have to have an IPA you start but you know i like uh, made it decent but like not as good as i knew it could be because i didn't want to like become an IPA factory and
0: oh man uh, you were purposely sandbagging your IPA yeah a little bit oh man okay okay but then um the whole i mean cuz that is one of those things like if a beer hits yeah. you're going to be making a lot of that beer no exactly can, yeah. yeah
1: and i the, the brewery that i worked at before we were just we were making West Coast IPA. Sure. We were going, you know, 10 kegs a day on the weekends of right. West Coast IPA. And it's like, there's so much more to beer. I want A big part of it was, you know, when we started in San Diego, there was already a world-class example of every style being made. So how do we not just be another regurgitation of that? And how do we add something to the beer scene here? How do we make something new? and make something that's complementary, and not just be like, Oh, we're going to make a clone of, you know, stone IPA and try to make it like a little bit better than them and try to take their tap handles kind of thing. Um, we wanted to do something that was a little more um, terroir driven uh, with sourcing our ingredients and open that story of how beer isn't in an in industrial good. It's something that does start with the farm and then that translates all the way to the pint that you're getting. Sure,
0: sure. That makes sense. I want to talk about how you actually do that, especially in some <laughs> of these uh, you know, specific styles that you all make a lot of beer. And before we do that, take your brewing to the next level with Accubrew's revolutionary fermentation monitoring system, now predicting specific gravity. With Accubrew, you'll have precise control over the fermentation process and ensure consistent, high-quality results. Their cloud-based app and compact sensor work together to monitor specific gravity, fermentation activity, clarity, and temperature – AccuBrew is CIP-ready and designed to stay out of your way. Their set-it-and-forget-it solution streamlines systems and processes, confirms consistency, and helps detect problems before they ruin a batch. Join the AccuBrew community today and experience 24-7 peace of mind. Visit AccuBrew.io to learn more. Also, brewing is currently one of the most innovative, adaptive, and fast-paced industries in the world. With consumer demand shifting to the latest and greatest trend, it can be difficult for production teams to keep up with requirements. The ProFill series of rotary can fillers from ProBrew are accelerating plant production everywhere. These fillers can run at speeds between 100 and 600-plus cans per minute while achieving precise and consistent filling volumes. Not achievable – by most inline and mobile fillers. For more information, visit www.probrew.com or email contact us at probrew.com to learn exactly how they can take your operations to the next level. ProBrew, brew your beer. And Tabski QR code ordering is the future of brewery ordering with Tabski. Your customers can order and pay for their beers right from their phones by scanning a QR code on the table, get rid of lengthy lines and increase check size by up to 30%. Tabski is free for operators and integrates seamlessly with popular payment systems like Clover and Square. So why not join the future of brewery ordering and give Tabski a try Learn how you can get started today at tabsky T-A-B-S-K-I dot com. All right, so let's talk a little bit more about that. Uh, you know, you now have some lanes you go in. Obviously, Pure Project as a brand makes a lot of hazy IPA. You still make you make West Coast IPA now too <laughs> because consumers need that from you. You make a lot of you know fruit fruit forward beers and flavored beers, um, and then at the same time you contrast that by making you know, rain a, a, a Pilsner beer. And, uh, you also still make all of these, uh, you know, farmhouse style beers, mixed culture beers, and even spontaneous blend beers. Um, you know, as you, you mentioned, you know, that you take an ingredient first approach to that. Um, you know, if, if you're talking about bringing a Pilsner, for example, how do you take, you know, what was your ingredient approach to making a Pilsner that was going to feel right for pure project here in San Diego?
1: Yeah, so our version um, is a little more rustic. We actually use unmalted wheat in it. Really? Uh, yeah, so we use, uh, we, use a, we use a lot of unmalted wheat, okay. actually, um, just from a sustainability point. Um, it's not having to ha- go through the malting process, which is yeah. energy and water intensive. Sure. You can't use high proportions of it because uh, you won't be able to get the extract out of it right. that you want. Um, but it's really great. We were able to get directly from the farm. It comes in a super sack, and we just, you know— have a a bucket with a Sharpie line in it. We're like, that's 25 pounds. And you know, we use it in a lot of, a lot of our beers. A lot of our Mm. beers have uh, unmalted wheat in it. So a little bit,
0: what, what is it, you know, what what do you find that it provides other than the environmental benefit from it?
1: Uh, it gives a little more body gives head retention and, uh, haze stability. So, you know, our, our main Pilsner rain is unfiltered, right? Uh, we have, we still brew that at our original facility where we don't have our, a centrifuge and it has a nice like haze stability to it. Um, just a slight haze. It's not like that bright, bright, right, you know, right. uh, yeah. Plate and frame filtered, uh, Pilsner it's look. It's beer style haze more yeah, than Yeah, exactly. Is, uh,
0: yeah. than than what we would call haze in the IPA mm-hmm. realm today.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then we make it definitely San Diego style. So our, our, we don't use RO. Um, so all of our Mm. beers are based around municipal San Diego water, which is very high in sulfate and a lot harder. So you get a lot more, um, hop expression with that. So we really load up that beer with a lot of Hallertau. That beer is actually our highest hot side, um, hopping of any beer. Mm. Um, so we're, putting uh, a pound and a half per barrel of Hallertown in the Whirlpool of that beer, which is pretty big just to get that big floral expression, uh, while still having like a balanced bitterness. Um, so we're not having to go really high on the IBUs.
0: That's, a, that's quite a bit in a Whirlpool
1: mm-hmm. for a Pilsner. Yeah. Very non-traditional. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Um, you know, what, what do you, what's your goal for bitterness for that beer?
1: Uh, I think it's somewhere, well, the, the initial like 90 minute editions like probably like 10 to 15 IBUs and there's probably like a five to 10 IBU at 15 minutes. I, it's really hard with IBUs. We've never yeah. done like PCR testing for IBUs. We kind of just, you, you learn in your brew house, Yeah, you know, and I think definitely our beers have gotten <laughs> as originally being a NorCal brewer, my beers were a lot less bitter initially. And now being, you know, brewing here for, you know, almost eight years now, it's like, uh the beers have gotten more and more bitter over time. You know, my, my level of where balance is for me has changed completely compared to when I was in Northern California and, you know, I was like, you know, 10 to 15 IBUs on like a Saison and now it's like, you know, looking more like 20, you know, which is perceptible. You have that drying effect, but our, our big thing was always really dry beer. So getting our beers to dry out, you know, to around like one, one to two Play-Doh range, really getting a lot of our beers really dry, um, high carbonation. So then you're not having to use a lot of IBUs to create that like drying effect where you're, you know, you're on three, three Play-Doh finishing gravity. You're going to need a lot of IBUs to, you know, create that balance. But then you have more, a kind of more flabby beer. Sure. So,
0: you know, using unmalted wheat in this kind of Pilsner and also trying to drive a very dry beer means that, you know, you've, you've got to be working some mash technique to, to try to, to get that to attenuate. And then also, you know, building a, I, you know, a system with your seller to, to get there. What, what is, what do those two things then look like for you? Yeah.
1: Really healthy use is really important. Um, the first batches of we, that we did for it, it was, it was like, uh, we were initially released as an October beer, this was like 2018 or something like that. And we, the first batches, we did decoction on it. And then we did a side by side to see if we liked the decoction or not. And we actually didn't like it because hmm. let's be frank, like we're making a lager so we can have a nice light dry beer. And the decoction was not, it was creating more body and sweetness because this it's like a, um, like an 11 and a half Play-Doh beer. So a little higher, you know, mm. I, I wish I could make it 10, but, you know, people don't have a tendency to buy beers that are under five percent, right? So if they this was want to a,
0: pay, pay craft beer prices for yeah, beers exactly. Enough, yeah,
1: so yeah. like if the beer was four percent, oh man, the decoction would be beautiful, yeah. or like a Bohemian floor malt pilsner to give it a little more body and flavor. Right. Um, but we just wanted it dry and uh, lean and uh, create body through high protein malt. The uh, oh sorry, not malt uh, unmalted wheat. Yeah, uh, and then just uh, you know single infusion at one fifty to get it nice and dry the fermenter.
0: Yeah, how does uh, how does uh, fermentation then roll for you? Uh, is there yeast that you find gets you where you need to go in that?
1: Yeah, we use um, thirty four seventy. I'm a big fan <laughs> of go. I'm a big fan of dry yeast. Okay. Like it, you can keep it in the fridge for when you when and if you need it. Sure. I, I mean, healthy fermentation is the most important part of making beer. Um, you know, healthy yeast makes good beer. I mean you can have the best recipe in the world. And if you're, you know, yeast sucks, then you're not making good beer. So, um, 3470 and just ferment it. Cool. Um, you know, 50 to 52 degrees. Um, I don't know. I've talked to so many brewers, traditional, uh, lager brewers from all over the world and everyone has a different technique of doing it. Uh, you know, I'd love the idea of, you know, we do a little bit of a D rest on it. We let it free rise up to like 56, uh, at the end but I've also heard the traditional German style where you do no de-rest and then you just send it to the lager cave. And I I don't know, everyone has a different way of making it. It's weird because I've had beers that were like, Oh, this is 3470. We pitched it at 64 degrees and then cooled it to 50 the next, next day. And I'm like, where are all the esters? Like this should be like super estery. I don't smell any of them. So sometimes you just have to see what works with your process because you can talk process with them, you know, a hundred different brewers from all over the world and, everyone's beer is gonna taste so much different. Lager is one of those still mysterious things to me, whereas ale, yeast, you know, everyone's kind of fermenting the same range, getting their de-rest, very similar process, you know, based on that, you know, English brewing process. But lager is just, it's really varied in how people are making them, it's really interesting.
0: I love that the range is there because it gives me plenty of things to talk about with brewers all over the world. Yeah, all have very different opinions of these. Um, You know, and yeah, you're right. There's there's lots of different ways to get to similar ends, um, and great ways to make award winning beers that people love. Um, from single infusion to decoction to all of these. And really kind of, you know, what I love about it is it becomes a very system focused thing. Mm-hmm, yeah. What is, you know, what is your brew house? Where, where did, you know, the malt that you're getting, um, you know, the yeast that you're pulling, the exact hops that you're like all of these things have small, you know, little impacts on the way that you do this and can, can change the, you know, the expression of these things. <laughs> and, and the, the so.
1: beers are so subtle when they're done well, that any little change in the process makes a huge perceivable difference in the final product.
0: Yeah. So if you're thinking about your, your lager, then, you know, what do you think, uh, you know, obviously fermentation plays the, the big role in that, but, uh, you know, are there some of those little you know things that you pay particular attention to through the process, um, you know, that you find make big differences at the end?
1: Yeah. I mean, um, spunding the beer to get natural carbonation. Sure. I've talked with some continental European breweries that have I, I, lo- I love this like romantic idea of how continental European brewers, you know, brew lagers and sometimes they're not doing the things that we think that they're doing. So, you know, talking to Czech brewers and like, Oh, we don't spun. We get too much sulfur when we do that. I'm like what? You guys don't have natural carbonation. here. are is mind blown, you know? Um, but we try to get uh natural carbonation. And
0: I should say some do and some don't. Yeah, you know, exactly. Like I, yeah. I have seen spending valves on tanks in Czech breweries and not seen those. Like, you know, again, there is even there we have a monocultural idea of the way the Germans brew lager. Well, Germans brew lager in a lot of different ways. Yeah, Czechs brew lager in a lot of different ways. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that's what again keeps it interesting, depending on where you are and uh, what the process is behind it. Um, you know, but I can imagine for you wanting to take this kind of environmental, environmentally friendly approach—the idea of not buying CO two from a commercial producer that's generating CO two. You know through a, you know, methane by, uh, byproduct process would be pretty attractive.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I started homebrewing like everyone else and, you know, something about bottle conditioning and keg conditioning, we still do that with all of our mixed fermentation beers and I, it's mysterious. Like, is it a tighter bubble? Is it not? Is it better lacing on the beer? I, I don't know. The jury's out still, but there's something to like the natural carbonation that's really nice. Um, and trying to get that nice rocky thick foam head that's on a good lager, you know? Well, there you are using wheat to help yeah. uh, to <laughs> boost help it up do a that. little bit. Man,
0: you're cheating. <laughs> totally cheating. <laughs> well, uh, let's talk about IPA then for a little bit, and, mm-hmm. I, and then further on we'll get into some of the mixed culture and fun and funky stuff. But uh, um, you know, but ba- 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 hazy IPA in particular, uh, you know, is is a big part of what you do. You know, um, you know, we as we were talking before we started the podcast, like craft beer is in this interesting place where. Uh, It's been so flavor focused, you know, lager seems to be a reaction to that. Hazy IPA is very, very, you know, focused on intense flavor, fruit beers, very focused on intense flavor, Um, you know, that kind of, you know, trading beer nerd style of, uh, you know, pastry stout, very focused on intense flavor, you know, and strength, Um, you know, but finding some balance in that, you know, especially, you know, in a way that Pure Project does it with you know, needing to sell multiple beers to people as they come and visit a tap room. Like you have to balance the idea of that intensity with that drinkability. you know, and I think, uh, you know, so I'm curious then, you know, as you approach a project, you know, like, uh, you know, brewing hazy IPA, uh, how did you start? And, uh, you know, how has that developed over the years now for you?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, initially I was saying we were sandbagging our IPA. I think, uh, the onset of hazy IPA was a really turning point for us where, um, we started trying in the back, like, you know, Julius and these things and we're like, wow, I think we could really like make something really interesting and and expressive. Um, so when I started brewing, it was when like West coast IPA was just becoming a thing and all the old head brewers were like, Oh, that's not an IPA. Where's the crystal malt? You know, you're, why are you dry hopping so much? All this stuff. And then it became the most popular style in the United States. And it was kind of the same thing was happening in San Diego with AZ IPA. People were like, hazy, it is, it is, is true. lazy. There's and,
0: always going to be a generation of brewers yeah. that hates everything new.
1: Now, now I feel like I'm that guy. Like, what am I going to hate next? Like, oh, sure. they're damn rap music, you know? Um, but we were trying these beers and we we're like, this is such a cool expression of hops. Yeah, yeah. This is such a different thing. Uh, also, being someone who's always into Belgian beer and uh, English beer, the expression of yeast character is something that's very lacking in West Coast styles. It's a, it's a it's supposed to be missing, right? You want sure, sure. you want to be clean, lean, and showcase you know those sea hops. Whereas hazy IPA was a huge expression of the yeast. And realizing that what yeast you choose. It's going to really determine what your hazy IPA is like and then just really getting to it and just making bad a lot of bad ones and then trying to figure out how to do it right and trying to figure out haze stability. And it it was a really fun and interesting process to go through because there were very few people that we could talk to about process. So it was kind of just us figuring it out on our own. Um, and we also kind of coined the word uh, murky IPA right. um, as opposed to like the New England IPA because we are working with municipal water here. We don't have that delicious like Brooklyn water that has no minerals in it. So being high in sulfate and high in hardness here, our hazy IPs taste different than what you would get out of a New England IPA. We don't have that like kind of soft pillowy-ness. We have a little bit more bitterness. Um, And it makes the beers taste a little more lean, I think, than um, some of the uh, East Coast beers, which can be pretty dry, but just have that really nice fluffy uh, cleanness to it from the water. Um, So we just wanted to kind of coin our own style, you know, uh, about it.
0: How does that impact then, you know, the overall design? You know, you... In this sense, you're fixing in, you know, this one variable and that's water. You're taking that off the table, which is especially in hazy IPA is something that most hazy IPA makers spend a lot of time working on and adjusting. Yeah. You know, and so you you just you take that off the table and say, you know, we're going to have to work around that. Um, what are some of the other concessions that you then, you know, as you're developing, you know, what this hazy IPA is going to be for you that you use to kind of compensate and adjust around the idea that you're not going to, uh, you know, to, uh, adjust your water.
1: Yeah. Uh, so we are adding chloride. So that was oh, okay. something that we had to figure out. Chloride was very helpful for hay stability. So um, you can
0: add, you just can't take away. Yeah. We can't take away. Right.
1: Yeah, so yeah. we're starting at like a hundred PPM of both chloride and sulfate and like 400 hardness. Right. So that's pretty high. Yeah. Um, so then we're trying to, you know, double the chloride content to get our kind of like two to one ratio of uh, chloride get our chloride up so we can get some more um softness to the beer and then also keep the haze stability um and then from there that's a lot of overall mineral it's a lot of mineral yeah like if you taste the water here in san diego out of the tap it's like oh wow all right (laughs) (laughs) um but then using uh high proteinous uh grains uh so tons of oats and Mm -hmm. a little touch of unmalted wheat but we use a lot of um, flaked oats and malted oats to really bring that body and the smoothness back in. Yeah. And then, us when you sm- say
0: a lot, what is that in like a broader percentage range? Like
1: twenty to thirty percent.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so, that is a lot.
1: Yeah. So then, then also realizing we stopped making West Coast IPA for two or three years, so then we started drying out our murky IPAs, kind of like a la you know cellar maker, sort of that West Coast hazy. Yeah. And then we were finding that we weren't able to dry hop them as much. Like the hops were, were becoming kind of abrasive once mm. we had less canvas to work with. So then we started making West Coast IPA again. Then we're like, we need to really have a contrast between our West Coast. It can't just be like, because our West Coast beers, like we didn't have a centrifuge at the time. So our West Coast beers were hazy That's too. True, yeah. So yeah. like we had hazy West Coast beer and then we had kind of West Coast murky beer. So then we were like, okay, we need to start moving these apart from each other and making them very distinct. So that you have a different, um, experience when you try each one of these styles from us. And when you order it on the menu, you wouldn't get them confused in a tasting flight. Um, so bringing that body back up into the the murky IPAs, like our uh singles are finishing around like three and a half play-doh. So not really high yeah, compared to yeah. like a lot of people, um, around three and a half and then around four and a half for the doubles. Um, and then getting our West Coasts like really dry down to like one Play Doh. So then there's like that contrast. But what we're finding now is there might not be enough canvas in the West coast beers. So (laughs) I don't know. It's always ever changing, right? You, the audience is changing as fast as you are changing the beers. And you know, I like blind pig, for example, you know, like that was a different beer a little while ago. I love the new one. It's great. I I really loved it. I wasn't a huge fan of it in the past because of the crystal malt and like the, the different perception of the beer. And I think it's okay to change brands, you know, it's okay because people change, the audience changes, they want different things and you know, it's all about just making people happy. That's what this is all about, right?
0: I always I always look at it, you know, or I can fall back on my art analogy. You know, if you look at like the history of painting, yeah, you know, there are movements that happen in art where once somebody, you know, puts something out there in the world and you see it, you can't unsee it and, mm. and You know, as an artist, as a creative person, you have to now create work in the same world that that thing exists in. You know, and you may not look at your own work the same way after you see someone else's expression like that. Like, we live in this kind of world of context, right? And so people taste something else, you taste something else, and you may not be able to taste yours the same way again, but you still want it to hit in the same way. And so how do you make it hit that same way? Often that change is the thing that's necessary to make it stay the same and make it, uh, you know, feel still like you and also at the same time current. And so, um, you know, this is that – ongoing creative process that every brewer faces because we live in this world where everyone has that kind of context that is constantly changing. Yeah. What's it. the,
1: what's the idea and what's the experience of the beer, not yeah. what it is on paper. And I think us as brewers and as scientists and, you know, chemists, biologists side of the whole process, we tend to get really technical about it. And then we sometimes just forget, does it taste good? You yeah. Know? And which we always have to keep coming back to. Um,
0: yeah. So how do you, uh, well, maybe we should talk about how you make <laughs>
1: these murky IPAs
0: taste good. Yeah. Um, you know, again, as they continue to, to kind of change and you keep trying to, you know, find the right slot for them. Before we do, before we go into that. Um, oh, you like wildly aromatic IPAs and tropical lagers. Good thing Omega designed thialized yeast. Just for that reason, thialized yeast are a new tool for brewers to bring intense guava and passion fruit aromas out of your malt and hops. And wait, there's more. Omega Yeast makes a yeast to order with a consistent one-week lead time, ensuring peak freshness and reliability. Also, keep your brewery running smoothly with Five Star Chemicals. Their cleaning solutions are specifically formulated to meet the unique needs of breweries ensuring that your equipment stays clean and free of harmful bacteria and contaminants from cleaning fermenters to kegs. They have a solution for every step of the brewing process. Use five-star chemicals today and taste the difference in your brews. And ABS commercial has been a full service brewery outfitter for over 10 years. They're proud to offer brew houses, tanks, keg washers and small parts to brewers across the country, as well as equipment for distilling, Cider making, wine making, and more. They know the ins and outs of the brewing and installation process and can design the perfect setup for you, whether you're just starting out or looking to expand. Contact them today at sales at abs-commercial.com to discuss your customized brewery needs. ABS Commercial, we are brewers. All right. So uh, you know, the world of hazy IPA is a broad one. Um, you know, and there are certainly when we we talk about it as one thing but i mean even within this there are definitely lanes that uh, hazy ipa rolls in you have your expression but then you also have hops and you also have uh, uh, you know other ways to kind of you know push levers and make these pleasurable drinking experiences talk to me about some of the the different ways that you find expression in that, uh, you know, I, in particular, I think I've had some, like you, know, you mentioned your love of New Zealand and <laughs> Southern Hemisphere hops. We have, our, you know, and our, our judges have rated some of those beers incredibly high, uh, high 90s ratings, uh, you know, for our blind judges. Uh, you know, talk to me about constructing and balancing some of those uh, um, intense hop flavors and finding ways to, to make them uh, appealing and complementary.
1: Yeah, I think the big thing is it it comes back to the farmer, right? Um, hop quality is the biggest thing. I mean, when you're when you're dry hopping beers, four plus pounds per barrel, the hop quality is it's going to be a majority of your flavor profile. Yes, you have to have a nice uh, canvas to work with. You have to have that nice pillowy body. You have to have your water constructorite. right. You need an expressive yeast to give you those um, you know a little bit of biotransformation action and um, the uh, the esters, um, but hops are the number one thing so being able to work with our hop suppliers we work a lot with uh, yakima chief um they've been huge um asset to be able to work with them selecting hops is really big to be able to have a set lot of hops the entire year that was a huge game changer for us um and why just we have consistent hops throughout the entire year right so we're able to we tend to pick things off the table that are little, um, they're kind of outliers, right? They have more pop. We're not afraid of onion garlic also in our, um, raw hop selection. Um, we see that a lot of those. Um, you said that those are.
0: You can't say onion and garlic. like the, it's, it's either well, OG or uh, JC uh, Trillium's word was allium. Allium, allium yeah, yeah. So allium. It just feels much less, you know, it just doesn't stick in your head like that.
1: Yeah, the, but they're thiols, right? Sure. So thiols, when you have them in very or high sulfurs, concentration, yeah. yeah, they have. Diols in high concentration smell like onion and garlic, right? So as they degrade over the the crop year, those actually become really beautiful, fruity flavors and become tropical. So we found that in the past where we were getting (laughs) like CTZ and these crazy, you know, varietals that you know are very heavy in those compounds. But as you were aging them out throughout the crop year, they were getting a lot fruitier and not perceptible like that in the final beer, especially where you have the biotransformation going on.
0: So those OG-ish hops on the selection table got fruitier than as they sat in your uh, your hop cooler? Yeah, they
1: don't really scare us off. Oh. I don't know. We, we're just looking for big, um, you know, tropical citrus, um, dank, um, and w- what we know will work with our house um, hazy strain.
0: Yeah. You know, and, and out here on the West Coast, like a little bit... W- Little yeah, weed, weed, weed bag. Ears. Yeah, it's a little okay. weed bag is Okay. Yeah. yeah. Every, everyone's everyone's cool with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. You know, as you're building hop blends, what's your process look like? You know, how do you uh, you know, how do you go? You know, think about these kinds of things.
1: Yeah. So I mean, I'd love to do single hop beers, but some of the most amazing new hops that are coming out don't perform well as single hops, right? So like Sabro, it's a very classic example. That hop is amazing. Its expression is so intense for per pound of what you use. And the fruit is amazing in the context of a portion of the dry hop and use in conjunction with other tropical hops. But if you have it all by itself, then the coconut gets so intense that it ends up tasting like dill. And then now it's vegetal. It goes past being fruity and being vegetal. So I feel like you know, when people start doing these experimental hop beers with these experimental hops, you have a few... As a consumer, you have a few made that are heavy-handed with it, and then it ruins the hop for you. So then it's like, now no one wants that, bro. Like I mean, you're either a bro guy or you're not a bro guy, right? <laughs> I'm a bro guy. Okay. We don't use it that often, though, because I'm scared if people are going to buy it or not. You ever use it and not put it on a label? Uh, No. We like to be very yeah, transparent yeah. about our ingredients, right? So it being... Because that is the
0: thing, like, you know, with a consumer, you, you, uh, you you know, with all of these ingredients, if you put it on a label, people will then use that. Consumers will use that as their, their touchstone. Like they will, you know, triangulate and measure like how much of this did I get? Yeah, exactly. You put cinnamon on a label, you put vanilla (laughs) on a label, like, well, I didn't get the vanilla in that. Like, you know, you have to be careful about what, you know, and, you know, there's always that question out there, like, like you know, you go to a fine dining restaurant and no chef's going to give you the list of ingredients. They're not they going to tell you how much MSG they put in it. They're going to, they're going to tell you like, you know, a few key high points yeah. to help you order that off of a menu, but they're not going to need, they don't need to get into all the details around that. And, you know, brewers in that interest of transparency of yeah. often, like you know, but hops also can market a beer and you see, oh, Citra, I like Citra, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's almost like using style, you know, or just like a style subset as a. A shorthand to help people kind of connect with beers and want to order them and want to take a risk on that. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of.
1: Yeah. So that's a big way of how we uh, approach our hop blending is we like to have a baseline, right? So mosaic or citrus are usually that baseline for us. And depending whether we're trying to go citrusy or. Uh, tropical or dank, we decide which one will be that base. And definitely when we're doing experimental, um, we work with, uh, the, uh, New Zealand hop breeding program. Um, and so when we're doing those experimental beers, we actually put a baseline to mosaic because we know what that tastes like and we know that the experimental hop won't make this beer like undrinkable if it has something really crazy in it, but we know we'll still have an enjoyable beer as brewers and working with this mosaic for an entire year. We know how to subtract that out of our palate and we know that what we're tasting from the experimental hop.
0: Yeah. Interesting. So mosaic is that for you? That's mosaic your,
1: is like a really big goat. It's our salt, you know, it's yeah. like just salt and everything, you know.
0: <laughs> That's your through line. Your
1: selected mosaic is yeah. the, is
0: the thing that gets it done.
1: Yeah. Loftus farms. We, we blind select it like almost every year. Yeah. So yeah. Pretty amazing. It's, it's, it's
0: funny. I'm hearing that more and more from folks, uh,
1: you know, uh, Russian river is the same way. Weld works
0: the same way. Like, uh, you know, they are. You know, once you once you find the thing you like, oftentimes even if you go back to blind selection, like you know, it's it's generally
1: yeah. Same, and they're, unless they're- you have a crazy grow year on the farm, you know, and some you have yeah, just weird weirdness, but yeah. Sure.
0: Sure. Um, are there, uh, uh, you know, other techniques that you use in selecting, uh, you know, some of these hops and finding ways to blend them, or are there, are there some other hops that become some of your smaller percentage, uh, you know, go to put a fine point on things, uh, in a hop blend kind of hop?
1: Yeah, definitely. We make some pretty high ABV, um, IPAs as well. And as, as we, as the ABV goes higher, we tend to stray away from danker hops. Mm. Uh, we find kind of like, you know, when you proof whiskey to go into a barrel, you get different flavors from the, uh, the oak. The same thing kind of happens with uh, hops. So like in our pale ales, it's always these amazing floral expressions, lighter, tropical. And as you get bigger and bigger and bigger, the alcohol extraction is giving you way more dank, sweaty, mm. you know, when you can kind of get like that armpit sometimes, sure. sweaty socks. Um so if you have to be really room, yeah. yeah you have to be really careful what you're putting in those big IPAs so like we like things like uh, a for example really low mm. alpha New Zealand hop we like to put in that in our really big IPAs because it gives us fruitiness without giving us sweatiness
0: Interesting, any other, uh, you you know, hops that you use in certain ABV levels and not others?
1: So this is the first year that we uh, selected for Cascade, actually, and we're blown away by the quality of the Cascade. We're really happy with it. Um, So we've been messing around with it here and there. That's going to be another one when we put it on the label. People are going to be like, I don't know if I like that, you know. Should I buy that beer? I've had some bad Cascade beers. Um, But, I mean, so much acreage has been ripped out of Cascade for things like Mosaic and Citra and Strata that the Cascade that's left is, it's really good.
0: It's really good. I mean, you know, all of these hops have lifespan, right? You know, what, 15-ish years, uh, you know, for any of the plants before they've all got to be replaced anyway. And Mm -hmm. so... You know, I guess some of their some renewal around some yeah. of these things and
1: and also the growers know what we're looking for now. There's a lot more interplay going back and forth. Um, YCH is now they were just telling me last night that they're gonna have a new thing at selection this year where they're taking all the feedback from our selection process for the last few years and they're putting it into this like algorithm that's gonna help spit out actual like lots that we'll like instead of them having to physically go in and you know, do sensory on them and try and give them to us. So there's really exciting stuff. And I think the most important thing is the communication. Wait, is that a
0: useful use of AI? (laughs) What?
1: Yeah. (laughs) So the communication between the... The brewer, well, the audience, the brewers, and then the brewers back to the farmers is yeah. really important. And that was a really big eye-opener the first time I went to New Zealand for hop selection is like I was going to these hop farms and I'm going to this, you know, organic hop farm that I've been really cool to meet the guy. I've been using his hop for 12 years and I finally get to meet him. And he, I'm like, oh, I love your, you know, I love every hop that you grow. I love your Pacific Jade. They're like so fruity and good. And he's like, I grew a 20-alpha motuaire, and that's like the biggest thing he's proud of. And I'm like... Colin, like, you don't understand what we do with your product at all, do you? And he's like, what do you mean? I grew a 20 Alpha motuaire, Didn't you hear what I said? You know, (laughs) like, so there's a big, uh, there's a disconnect sometimes between the people who are growing our ingredients and the final people who are drinking our beer. So we need to be that uh, intermediary between them so we can make them successful because without successful farmers, we won't have successful breweries. 100%.
0: 100%. We had Ron uh, Beetson on the podcast a couple weeks ago. Um, you know, had a fantastic, uh, you know, you they are connecting the dots again in between, you know, growers and hop breeders and uh, you know, oh, that's really cool. The yeah. varieties that uh, the brewers want. But I I do want to get back to this because obviously you've spent a lot of time, uh, you know, playing in this hop world. You know, are there other combinations that you find yourself going to and are there other, you know, what is it about like Cascade? Where are you going to use that now that uh, you've got this beautiful... Cascade coming in this year. <laughs> you the know, first, are there yeah. some of these specific things that uh, you're finding places for that may be unexpected, unusual, or or specific ways uh, you know other ways you use certain hops but not others?
1: Yeah, so it's really nice. We have we still have our original smaller brewery, which is like a seven barrel brew house, fifteen barrel fermenters, so we can play around with more experimental stuff. Um, and I think we're just trying to f- now, you know, going through the experience that we had with like Sabro trying to find how to correctly use hops because now it's being bred. I mean, there's just hops are just so out there, like they don't smell like hops. So how do you use them and still create what people think of as beer, right? Uh, Or IPA. Um, So really just working with the ingredients firsthand and trying not to be too heavy handed with them. I think that's the big thing and using them in blends using them to showcase other aspects of, you know, maybe showcase the fruitiness of the yeast that you're using or interacting with another fruit or a spice. I think those are kind of the next levels of how to use um, hops.
0: Are there any specific uh, applications like that, that you're finding, you know, is
1: there a beer or
0: two that you've designed over the last year where, you know, you've in order to kind of maximize one, some of these flavors that are inspiring you from these hops or aromas that, uh, you know, you've, made some other recipe decisions around that?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, every year uh, we try to do wet hop beers and we're trying to figure out how to make them better and have them be more, uh, they taste good for more than a week. That's very difficult to do with wet hop beers. So this last year we actually did a uh, spontaneous beer with Strata Hops and then we aged it for six months in uh, oak barrels and then we worked with indie Hops. We racked the barrels into our blending tote and we put all the the wet hops into the blending tote and the next day bottled the beer in a hope that bottle conditioning the beer would kind of freeze that that wet hop experience in time. But we what we were really surprised about was the kind of like transformation that happened with all the brett that was in the, really? the beer. And it just you know, if I handed you the beer, you wouldn't tell you wouldn't be able to tell if it was hops or, you know, wild yeast or fruit that was giving it, it has this crazy like peach strawberry thing. And you definitely would not be able to tell it was strata um, specifically, but it's, you can tell it's hoppy, but it's hard to tell where one thing ends and the next uh begins. So trying those kind of the interplay between different yeast strains and hops, I think is really big. Well, you just gave me a segue
0: into talking about mixed culture beers here, <laughs> but let me back up on that. So you <laughs> brewed a spontaneous beer that you wet with wet hops strata yeah so not aged low alpha um you know no bullish hops you know not stuff that you've you know shredded the <laughs> alpha on down to the you know one or two percent range by uh, making sure that it's dry and brittle but actually wet hops how, i mean how did, how did that even work in a spontaneous beer
1: so um it was spontaneous, but we also, we also put some bread in it. Okay. So we knew there was a little baseline of bread in it. It wasn't like our normal, like method traditional stuff, but we left it. We open fermented the, entire, the beer the entire time and then put it into barrels. And there's definitely like a, um, you know, lactic acid bacteria going on and some wild yeast stuff going on. But we just wanted to – we're really trying to capture that, that wet hop because it's so delicate and so ephemeral right. and it's so fleeting. You, you only have it for a moment, and these beers are so amazing. You only get to have them for, like, one week a year. And, you know, I go to Bale Breaker at, at a, a hop harvest up in Yakima, and I'm just blown away by the stuff that they're doing with these wet hops. And it's like, I guess you have to have your own hop farm to all make wet hop beers this good, right?
0: You just have to be in Yakima because, yeah. you know, whether you're bale breaker or single hill or varietal. I mean, I've had, we were up there last year for harvest, killer. They're fresh insane, beers right? At all They're insane. Them, you know, um,
1: that was one of those things I couldn't unsee. You know, I tried those beers and I'm like, I can't unsee this. Yeah. How do I do this? Like, I don't know. I can't figure it out.
0: Well, you know, and, and then I think, especially when it comes to fresh hot beers, it's easy to and and you know so that everyone knows I've got a great panel discussion on brewing fresh hot beers coming up oh, uh, at the end of July with some folks that are actually brewing some beers for for that uh, podcast specifically i'll have more about that in the future but it's gonna be good you don't want to miss it uh um, we're keep trying to time it so that uh, it'll be out at the <laughs> end of july right like, as we start you know kicking harvest, into, yeah kicking you know the the front end well i mean it's pre-harvest but you know, we'll have the uh the podcast to be out there so people yeah. as they're getting into their uh you know in august they're planning,
1: getting the boots on they're and they're planning their yeah. brews
0: they'll, they'll have some of that information out there anyway that aside i'm curious like you know you when you when you brew fresh hop beers, obviously dry hopping can stomp all over that fresh hop, you know,
1: character of the beer itself, and so you oh, know, we try to dry hop with the wet hops. With the wet hops, that's the biggest thing we're trying to figure out, and having trying so to get just the ve-
0: vegetal on top of vegetal, then. Uh, <laughs> yeah
1: so we're we're usually brewing the beer a week or two before the yeah. the beers are harvest and then putting the the wet hops into like a like what we'd use for like adjuncting our stouts like a brink and recirculating through them but we're trying it's really hard to get all the oxygen out so then the beers sure. are like two three days and then they're toast so you know trying to you know do something with like liquid nitrogen or trying to find a better way to purge out the hops so we can get some more um uh, you know shelf stability out of it. You know, Yakman Chief was telling me they have a new product that's, you know, it's like cryo wet hops that are like frozen. So maybe we'll try a little of that. Who knows?
0: Yeah, yeah. We'll have some beers later in July uh, brewed <laughs> with that kind of, you know, product. You know, for your the spontaneous beer that you make, you know, are, are those, is that hot side wet hop then? And
1: No, uh, so the wet hop was in the blending tote. So oh, the beer okay. was brewed with pellet T90 Strata on the hot side. Okay. Pretty high IBU load because we didn't want it getting sour. Sour and hoppy get like, it's like pickly, you know? Yeah. Um, so we, you know, pretty high IBU load, big Whirlpool addition um, of Strata and then open fermented, then into barrels for six months. And then the day before um, we knew the hops are getting picked, we racked we into a blending tote and then put the wet hops in there huh yeah and then bottled the next day how
0: do you how do you get any reasonable extraction of wet hop flavor yet with a kind of cold maceration of wet hops in that kind
1: of uh, it was great okay I, yeah <laughs> yeah it worked really well yeah yeah you just got to use enough of it okay that's well, the trick yeah how, how much is that like oh uh, man this was last harvest uh i think it was uh you know what we're, it was like equivalent to one to two pounds per barrel of T90. So 10 pounds per barrel
0: of the, of the, White of wet hops. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as you think about the sensory, uh, you know, impact of that, like, how would you describe the flavor? You mentioned, you know, you got some, what I would expect out of strata. So like, you know, that kind of peach character,
1: uh, yeah, um, really fruity, floral, um, Really fruity. Yeah. And then all of the kind of, um, herbal, there's no herbal aspect to it. Um, and what kind of you'd think of as like the classic like sea hop flavor and none of that just really fruity Mm -hmm. and, uh, not a lot of bitterness because it's, um, you know, not dried yet, not concentrated. So it has a nice balance to it, especially being such a dry, you know, finishing at zero residual sugar, you need to be really careful with how much additional bitterness you're putting in even with a dry hop. Sure. Sure.
0: Wet hop spontaneous beer, it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, once... a, you know, this is where we are in 2023. But um, well, let's talk about the you know, your kind of spontaneous and mixed culture beer program. You know, in a broader sense, Uh, you know, what do you, you know, you, we here at HomebrewCon, you just did a presentation to, at HomebrewCon about spontaneous fermentation. Clearly, it's something that you're passionate about, Um, but also your you know kind of more Brett focused mixed fermentation beers that are more managed than the spontaneous beers or at least more, you know, controlled variables, you know, are also, uh, you know, are a big part of, of what that does. When you, you know, talk to me about your philosophical position coming into that and how that manifests itself and some of the specific lanes of beers that you make in that world.
1: Yeah, I'm, I definitely a lot of the time take more of like the the artist approach than the scientist approach. And, yeah. um, I think the mixed fermentation side is really, um, fun for that, you know, especially with spontaneous beer, the barrel is kind of like this black box, right? You, you do everything on brew day and then you put it into this black box and you don't know what you're going to get out the other yeah. side. And that's where a big part of it is blending in the end, the uh, for consistent flavor profile and just, you know, editing, you know, it's not that the, the best breweries don't make bad beers just so you never get to try it. You know, that's a big part of it is yeah. editing, right?
0: When you say that, I, you know, it's funny. I, I've had plenty of conversations with brewers about this, when they want to become distillers. Mm-hmm. I'm like, distilling is also just that. Like, Interesting, huh? It is, you know, the distilling is just a statistical game. Like good yeah. distillers, oh, it's yeah. not that, you know, it's not that they have some great recipe. <laughs> it's just that you have so many barrels you can pick the good ones and make good brands out of that and you can take the bad barrels yeah. and you can make fireball out of it you know like <laughs> you know it's so, or
1: yeah you know and, and so it really just is everyone like, needs their bogle it's just a numbers <laughs> game you know
0: but that that's an expensive one for for uh, for brewers to approach from a you know if you're launching a spontaneous program it's not like you're going to go you know brew 100 barrels and only release 20 you mm. know barrels worth of beer like you can't afford to do that that's not what you know that's just not going to achieve yeah, the commercial definitely. success that you need out of this. But there's
1: other things that you can do with the beer, yeah. right? So like if you have something, a base and you're like, oh, this doesn't have the acid profile or funk that I want to see, then you'd be like, Oh, this can be a fruited, um, version of our spontaneous sure. beer. There's a lot of different things that you can do with it, putting it into blends with other things that, um, need more character or body. The spontaneous base, we find We, we follow the, the method traditional guidelines. So, very, uh, high complex base that is really good to blend with our other mixed firm beers that are more kind of just like single infusion and then, uh, clean fermented with sack and stainless before going into pre-inoculated barrels, very different approaches, right. To the kind of similar thing. So then being able to blend, it's all about having the variety in your barrel stock, I think is the biggest thing because it gives you a lot more options as far as what you can do with it. And. In the end, the fruited ones are going to sell the best, right? (laughs) So it it only really matters what we brew if we can sell it. Um, You know, our goose-inspired beer obviously has a great story behind it. And like the 1% of beer drinkers who know what that is might be stoked on it. And the other 99% are like, why the hell did I get this in my tasting flight today? I don't like the style half a bottle cap on untapped kind of people. Um, But that's the nature of it. Right. Like not everyone's going to like that and not everyone's going to understand the story behind the beer and why it matters and what it is. But the um, thing that really, you know, brings me back to the mixed firm and spontaneous beers is just it gets me in touch with history. Um, And also it's kind of like freezing a moment in time. Right. You know, being able, you know, what's in bottles right now of our three year blend. I brewed that four years ago. I can think about who I was, you know, I was still in my twenties back then. It's like, oh man, what was I doing? Where was I living? Who were my friends back then? What did I think, who did I think I wanted to be now? You can think back about your past self, you know, it's like, I always think about this, like, you know, we have this idea of who we want to be in the future, right? And we have hindsight's twenty-twenty. we know who we were, but it's really hard to see who you are right now and what and how that correlates to that person you were and that person you want to be. Um, and the, those beers can sometimes give me a good reference point and put me in the moment where I can kind of think about the, the thinking beers, you know? Sure. Sure. And then of course
0: you bottle them now and then and you got to wait <laughs> And then two or three years yeah. when you go back to them, they then reflect, you know, all over again uh, and they continue to develop over that time as well. Um, for sure. Let's. What are some of when you're making these spontaneous beers here in a very warm environment? Yeah. Uh, well, I shouldn't say warm. It's it's really yeah. pleasant here in San Diego. Yeah, it's I, nice right now. I think some people have a you know this kind of like fake or or a misleading idea of of california weather based on uh, some of the
1: news that we tend to get everything's on fire we everything is on fire it's either soaking wet or it's on fire
0: but it's like you know it's june and it's in the yeah it's it's like a high of 70 today it's breezy Mm. it's sunny really beautiful. And the the ocean here controls, um, you know, the, uh, the weather. It's
1: great for aging, um, barrels. We don't have to do any uh, temperature control in our warehouse. It mm. stays at a nice, you know, 60 degrees all year round. So really nice cellar temperature. So we're not getting, uh, too much, uh, lactic acid bacteria going on. We're able to keep the acidity of our beers down, which is really nice. And as far as the spontaneous beers go, we just kind of wait until it gets cold. Like we feel like it's cold enough. Um, usually we're brewing some like in December, January, maybe Mm -hmm. sometimes into March when it starts warming up, we've done some, uh, warmer temperature, spontaneous beers and it didn't, it didn't get too crazy away from what our, uh, middle of winter brews are like, but also we take our, um, spontaneous beers camping with us. Like one year we took them out and to a mountain here and we camped in the snow with it. And it was too cold. We did not get sure, enough sure. Uh, stuff out of the air. And it you know, didn't ferment for like a week. I was like, what are we going to do with this? It's never going to ferment. And then it fermented. It wasn't quite like in line with what I think our house flavor is. But it was a good blending stock. It was definitely very light on acid. Um, but...
0: Do you take any steps like, you
1: know, say pre-acidifying
0: in order to kind of, you know, protect some of these beers? Yeah, uh,
1: definitely. We've, um, the method traditional guidelines, you can pre-acidify down to four, four, um, pH, um, in your cool ship. We've done that, had discussions with our other brewers that, you know, other breweries are getting away from pre-acidification. I am, you know, being in a warmer climate does make me a little nervous. And it's one of those things like you spend a whole day to already make this and, why would you just risk it? I mean, it's already yeah, kind of risky sure. to make spawn beer in the first place. Yeah. Um, and a big part—I'm not worried about debate about funky. pre-acidification
0: is still out there amongst yeah. Belgian lambic brewers, you know. And so that's not even settled there. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say that there's a—it's a not that much. Yeah.
1: It's like in a you know seven barrel batch, we're putting like 0. 0.8 liters of lactic acid, 800 yeah. mils. It's not a ton. It's just enough to bring it down, you know? Yeah. And we're not going below 44, which is not that low. Sure, sure.
0: When, you know, with this style of beer, in order to achieve the flavor that you want, um, you know, getting that, that right blend of funk in this is just one of those key components. How do you maximize and steer these beers to kind of, you know, capture, that kind of beautiful, funky expression?
1: Well, being in San Diego, um, our spawn beer is very hop forward. Yeah, okay. Okay. (laughs) So like kind of that big, like uh, cheesy um, tobacco note that you can get from like a Cantillon or something like that. We we tend to be pretty heavy-handed with the hops, um, and something that we do to make it sort of like our own thing is we, we dry hop it in the blending tote. Huh. So when we, after we do our final blend, we'll dry hop with a little bit of aged hops, but the day before we, we bottle, um, that's kind of just like a little signature thing. We want to make the beer be a representation of place and yeah. we want to bring as much San Diego into that. So using municipal water, using California grown grain, you got to dry hop it, right? That makes it a San Diego beer.
0: It does sound like what a San Diego spontaneously fermented beer should be, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's you know, let's pull out a little bit. Let's look at the big picture. You know, um, obviously, when you all started Pure Project, you did it with a principled idea that you wanted to to give back, be a good business. You know, one percent for the planet um, you know, use sustain. you know, support, sustainable agriculture, support, support locally grown ingredients, um, as much as possible, you know, and, and approach it from that standpoint. Would you look back at it now? Um, how are you doing on that? Are you achieving what you set out to achieve? What do you hope to then achieve over the next, you know, five or 10 years now with, with pure project? Um, you know, what, it, how, if you're looking back, how does it look? And, uh, you know, does the future, you know, the near term and longer term future look like now?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, even through COVID and everything, I feel very proud that we weren't having to skip any of our 1% for the planet donations. Feel very proud that we've done that. We've given over $300,000 um, at this point to 1% for the planet. So hopefully that's made a, you know, small difference uh, in the world in a positive way. Our business has definitely changed over the years. Um, we, you know, we were very retail oriented business before. We were very lucky to make, start making murky IPAs when we did. we were very can release oriented. People came to us and left with cases and cases of cans. Um, and that was amazing. And as COVID has happened and we have grown as a brand and our team has grown and gotten older and wanted to have kids and 401ks and all those things that make actually careers out of, um, this industry, um, we are looking now, as as now becoming more of a distribution brewery, this something has changed over like the last year. We have five tasting rooms, which is amazing. We're still able to move a majority of our beer through our um, retail outlets, but now as we have a bigger brewery and we, you know, last year, I think we made like 6,000 barrels and we're looking at our capacity of being able to make 12 we can't move 6,000 more barrels through our tasting rooms. Right? So as we're becoming a wholesale and slightly distribution based brewery, we're trying to ask ourselves, how can we dedicate ourselves to those tenants that we've built the business on? Right. As grain prices increase, as fruit prices increase, as every, you know, packaging component increases, but the price of beer is not going up. How do we keep, you know, true to ourselves and true to our employees to make sure that Pure project is still what it is and that's something that's that's a big piece of my job right is making sure we're having those conversations and making sure we're um, only growing in what in the way that we're able to stay true to ourselves and stay true to our customers and stay true to our employees it's an
0: ongoing problem to have to to keep solving for and keep adjusting for and uh, you know adapting around the constantly evolving Situations that we're in here in the yeah. world, yeah,
1: the the new normal, right? Well, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. And as soon as we get ready, as soon as we get used to something this, new, it's going to be something new. Um, but that's the that's the nature of life and existence, mm-hmm. right? it fun, right? You know, we're that we're in a constant state of flow, yeah. and uh, you know, nothing is is static, nothing stays the same for too long. But mm. at the same time, keeps it interesting. Yeah, um, gives us new challenges to solve all yeah. the time. I think that's a great place to bring this to a close. GD Chillers has set the standard on quality service and reliability with 24 7 service and support. CanCraft can provide you with a full service packaging experience. Try Old Orchard's flavored craft juice concentrate blends in your next craft beverage. Join the AccuBrew community and experience 24 7 peace of mind. ProBrew's rotary can fillers reduce waste and produce higher quality packaged beer. Omega's thialized yeasts intense guava and passion fruit aromas out of your malden hops. Keep your brewery running smoothly with five-star chemicals. And ABS Commercial is your full-service brewery outfitter. If you've enjoyed this podcast, go to com. Click on that subscribe button. Winslow loves the magazine. I mean, Oh, like- I love the
1: magazine. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> Everyone should subscribe if you're listening right here to this podcast. Uh, um, we put a lot of work into it. And, uh, you know, we want everyone out there who's passionate about brewing to enjoy what we put into it um, and we get to share great ideas great thoughts uh, great brewing approaches from so many great brewers around the country and around the world so do that go to com for that um, Winslow if people want to learn more about Pure Project where do, they, uh, where do they find you guys in real life and out there on the internet
1: yeah so our website's purebrewing.org p-u-r-e dot org don't forget the dot org it's uh, the best or. place it's uh, the best place to find us and then Instagram is probably the best place for where we're doing most of our communication about what beers are coming out and what food trucks are tasting rooms. Uh, and that's uh, Pure Brewing at Pure Brewing. Sounds good. Well, I appreciate you talking to me about the way that
0: you brew at Pure Project. Uh, cheers. Thanks. This podcast has been brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those who love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.